Years ago when I was in college, I had the opportunity to spend a summer in Panama City Beach, Florida. It was called Beach Project. A group of us went to Panama City Beach. The girls stayed in one side of the efficiencies and the guys stayed on the other side. And it really was a summer of intensive discipleship and also beach evangelism. And they assigned all of us a particular church that we had to attend. I was assigned a Methodist church. And while I was at the church, the preacher said, you need to come back tonight because we have a special guest. We have Elvis Presley's stepbrother that's going to be coming. His name was Rick Stanley. In fact, I just read this week that Rick lives in Aiken, South Carolina, and he actually passed away just recently. But he is the stepbrother of Elvis Presley. About a month or two after Elvis died, he came to Saving Faith in Jesus Christ, and he was an evangelist. And I remember after the service, I asked him specifically, I said, I have two questions for you. Number one, is Elvis still alive? Because remember back in the late 80s, there were sightings of Elvis. He said, nah, don't listen to that propaganda. And then secondly, I said to him, do you think your brother is in heaven? Because, you know, Elvis sang gospel music and he heard the truth. He knew the truth. He said, Mike, he said about two weeks before my brother died, I remember him saying to me, I got to get things right with God. And I say, he said, I knelt by the bed with him and he embraced Jesus Christ. Now, whether that was a recommitment or whether it was his first time being born again, I don't know, but he believes that Elvis is going to be in heaven. Well, I'll never forget during his message, he made a statement that has stuck with me to this day. He said, prior to coming to the church service to do his revival meeting, he was out by the hotel where he was staying and the pool, there was a bunch of guys there. They were drinking beer and partying. And he said he felt the Lord told him to go over there and invite all of those young men to his revival meeting. And he said he hesitated because he struggled with being ashamed and being fearful like all of us would struggle. But he said he reached deep down inside and he went over and he invited all those young men. And I'll never forget that statement because he talked about how we have to be bold and unashamed for Jesus Christ. We have to be willing to die to self, and all of us struggle with that at times. Well, that's what I want to talk about this morning as we embark upon a new book, the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 1. I invite you to turn there, and the theme of this section is being unashamed for Jesus Christ. In fact, the word unashamed is used four times in this chapter, and so really that's the theme here as Paul wants to motivate Timothy not to be ashamed of Jesus Christ, but rather to be bold. Now, to give you a little background on the book, if you remember from the book of Acts, Paul did three missionary journeys. You'll notice up on the screen here, these lines, these colored lines represent his journeys. The red was his first journey. The green is his second missionary journey. You could read about this in the book of Acts. And the purple represents his third missionary journey. And basically, on his third missionary journey at the end, he ends up going to Rome. And while he's in Rome here, he's under house arrest for two years. He wasn't in a dungeon, but rather he had some mobility. He was able to preach the gospel. And while he was there in Rome, he wrote Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon. These are his prison epistles. Now, at the end of his two-year stint in prison in Rome, Paul was let loose. And many scholars believe by piecing the epistles together that Paul did a fourth missionary journey. He left Rome and he traveled 
with Titus, maybe Timothy as well. And he went to these various areas based in the epistles, and he ended up going back to Rome because according to the book of Romans, some scholars think he wanted to go all the way west to Spain to preach the gospel there, but he never made it to Spain because when he got to Rome or en route to Rome, he was arrested a second time. Now this time, he wasn't placed under house arrest where he had some mobility, but rather he was placed in a dungeon called the Mamertine Prison. Now, this is a sketch of sort of what the prison looked like. It was a hole in the ground, and you'll notice the next slide. The only light you had was coming from a hole in the ceiling there, and here's an actual picture of the Mamertine Prison. This is where Paul was confined. Paul was a Roman citizen, and we know from 2 Timothy that as he's languishing there in the Roman dungeon, the Mamertine Prison, This is his last letter before he dies. Nero is going to cut his head off, and he knows that his death is impending. And so he picks up his pen and writes this last letter to his son in the faith, Timothy, in order to motivate Timothy. Timothy was struggling with timidity. He wasn't a type A personality like Paul. He was dealing with formidable false teachers. He was also dealing with the potential of persecution, which meant imprisonment and possible death like Paul. And so Timothy began to somewhat disengage. And so Paul writes this last letter. This is his swan song. This is his triumphal epitaph that he basically is going to pass down to Timothy. And his goal is to motivate Timothy to fight the good fight of the faith. He wants to motivate Timothy to pass the truth down to the next generation because Paul knows he's going to die. And he wants to make sure that the truth is preserved and that Timothy does not recoil. Now, as I said in this chapter, he mentions the word unashamed four times. And so this morning, what I want to talk about is how you and I can be unashamed for Jesus Christ. I think we all agree that we all struggle with that at times. There are times when I look at my life and I have the gift of evangelism where I'm as bold as a lion. I was in New York City recently with my wife, and we did a bus tour, and we went to buy the tickets, and the machines were down, and I ended up asking the guy who was selling me the tickets to the bus tour, I said, where are you going to go when you die? And I got into this conversation with him, and he said, you know what? He says, thanks for reminding me of the truth, because he professed to be a believer, but he had wandered away from the truth. So there are times where I'm very bold. There are other times where I'm as timid as a mouse. I was in Walmart the other day, standing next to a guy. And I felt the Lord wanted me to share with them, and I kept my mouth closed. I didn't share anything because other people were around. Now, I'm not saying we're to be a bull in a china shop, we're to use wisdom with outsiders, Colossians 4 says, but we all identify with Timothy. Sometimes we're bold, sometimes we're timid. And this is a battle we're going to have until Jesus takes us home. But I think by and large, the American church is shackled with fear. The American church is inwardly focused. Because fear rules many Christians. They haven't shared their faith and they're not bold for Jesus Christ. And so, how can you and I in 2020 be unashamed for Jesus Christ? Well, in this text, there are several ways that we can take a stand and be bold for Jesus Christ. Let me share them with you. The first way is you must be involved in loving, accountable relationships. And this is critical because it's loving, accountable relationships that allows me to take a stand for Jesus Christ. Notice, if you will, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1. Paul 
an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul typically, when he opened his letters, would identify himself as an apostle. An apostle is someone who's sent out with a special mission, and it's what gave Paul his authority. He wasn't just speaking his opinion. He was speaking the very words of God. And in order to be an apostle, you had to be called directly by Christ, and you had to see the risen Christ. And so Paul would qualify to be an apostle. It was by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. And then he gives the salutation that is common in verse 2 to Timothy, my beloved son. He says, grace, which is God's unmerited favor, God giving me what I don't deserve. Mercy is withholding what I do deserve. I deserve judgment. God withholds it. And notice when I embrace God's grace and mercy, the result is peace. I have peace with God, and I have the peace of God. And notice this grace, mercy, and peace is from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. But I want to zero in on verse 3 because here we see the relationship that Paul had with Timothy. It wasn't just a ministry relationship. There was a deep bond. There was a deep friendship. He says in verse 3, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did. Now, why would he say that to Timothy? Well, he's subtly trying to motivate Timothy, saying, Timothy, I'm serving God just like the people in the Old Testament did, and the implication is I want you to serve God as well. And then he says this, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. You see, Paul loved Timothy. They had a strong bond. He prayed for Timothy regularly because he realized the formidable task that Timothy was dealing with. And then he says in verse 4, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. Paul was alone in this dungeon. Now, if you read chapter 4, Luke was with him and a few other people, but he loved Timothy. Now, when did Timothy cry? We don't know exactly when, but many people believe when Paul got rearrested again, at that point, Timothy was separated from Paul, and Paul remembers when Timothy began to cry because he loved the apostle Paul. I remember my wife homeschooled my three daughters, and in order to make extra money about 20 years ago, uh, Laura decided to babysit, and so we had this young girl come to our house when she was six months old. And we babysat her. Laura obviously did the lion's share of that. But I developed a relationship with this little girl when she was six months old. And then, of course, we eventually moved when she was two years old. Well, I treated her like a daughter because I loved her. And so all the years that I was in New Jersey, I stayed in touch with her. And I kept cultivating that relationship. And to this day, she's now 16 years old. I had the privilege of leading her to Christ and baptizing her. And she's young in her faith. But I remember when I would come to South Carolina from Jersey to visit, when I would see her, I would pick her up at uh, one of the areas that she was being babysat at. And I remember when I dropped her off, she would often cry. She would call me her second dad. And she would say, Daddy, don't leave me. And I'm like, stop it. You're going to make me cry. And so I remember that feeling of being estranged from her because she was like a daughter to me. Well, that's exactly how Timothy is feeling here about Paul. He says, I remember your tears. And he says, Timothy, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. You know, ultimately what satisfies us as you get older, you realize it's not things, it's relationships. That's what brings us ultimate satisfaction. But the reason why this is so important to being unashamed for Jesus Christ is when I'm involved in significant, loving, accountable relationships, you know what it does for me? It encourages me and strengthens me when I'm discouraged. 
You know, if you have people in your life that will give you encouragement and strength when you're going through difficulty, you know what that helps you to do? It helps you to keep your stand for Jesus Christ and not drift. Furthermore, when you have loving, significant, accountable relationships, when you stray from God, when you have friends and family that in Christ and in love will rebuke you and call you to follow Christ. You know how significant that is? I think we all have had relationships where people have spoken into our life when we've drifted from God or maybe we're getting lukewarm. I know I've had people speak into my life at significant times when I needed it. I remember recently a girl from my former church texted me and she said, I have a question to ask you. She says, I have a good friend who's getting married, and she's a lesbian, and she asked me to be in her wedding, and she says, I don't feel comfortable being in her wedding, but she said, Pastor Mike, should I attend the wedding itself? I said, I know it's going to sound difficult and harsh, but for me, I believe biblically you should not attend that wedding because you don't want to give endorsement passively that you support gay marriage. And of course, I could tell she was struggling with that because she said, if I do that, I may lose the friendship. And I said, look, I understand the struggle because when I was in high school, I had to take a stand for Christ with my party buddies. And I remember telling them, I can't go to the bars with you anymore and drink. And that was hard, but that was a significant turning point in my growth. But see, the reason why I was able to speak into her life, the reason she texted me and I was able to speak into her life is because we had a appropriate relationship where I was able to speak into her life. And so I want to encourage you, don't view church just as an event. See, in the American church, we view church as an event. We go on Sunday at 9 or 11, then we go home, and we're not involved in people's lives. You can't be involved in everyone's lives, but listen, we all need to be connected to the body of Christ. The church is not an organization. It has organization to it. The church is a family. The church is an organism. It has life. And see, in the American church, we're not about relationships. We're about tasks. We're about going to this, that, or the other. And what happens is we get isolated in the American church. We don't have relationships. So you know what? When we go through discouragement, people can't encourage us. When we're going through a time of drifting, what about the people that are going to speak into your life to help you be accountable? Now, whether or not you listen to them is another thing, but the fact is we need to be connected. That's why I want to encourage you. Get beyond Sunday morning and get in a small group. Some of you, God has been prompting you to get in a small group and you keep disobeying God. You keep quenching the spirit. You know why? Because you're distracted and you're lazy. Well, I'll do it when I feel motivated. No, you know what you got to do is draw a line in the sand and start getting connected to other people. And it's not just here. It could be outside of the church that you have significant relationships to other people. You know what Satan wants to do? He wants to isolate you. You ever seen National Geographic when you see a tiger or a lion and a pack of them are going after a herd of animals? What do they typically do? They will zero in on the weak link of those animals. And the one that is lagging behind in the pack, what do they do? They zero in on that weak link and they surround it and they end up capturing it, killing it, and eating it. You see, that's exactly what Satan wants to do. He wants to isolate you. When you're going through difficulty, challenges, or you're tempted to drift, if you can get isolated from the body of Christ and disconnect, what you're going to do is you're going to drift from God. And so I want to encourage you, if you don't have significant relationships, get involved. You know, a lot of Christians say, well, you know, I go to church and I don't know anybody, and so I'm going to leave and go to another church. 
Well, listen, it's the same thing if you're not making an effort to get connected. So that's the first way you and I could be unashamed for Jesus Christ is to be connected to loving, accountable relationships. The second thing that you and I can do is be a genuine, committed believer. If I'm not a genuine, committed believer, I'm not going to take a stand for Jesus Christ. It's that plain and that simple. Verse 5, he says to Timothy, I am mindful of the sincere, and that word sincere means genuine, unhypocritical. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, Timothy, your genuine saving faith within you. And notice, where did Timothy get it from? It first dwelt within your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. We know from the book of Acts that Timothy's father was a Gentile. He may not have been converted. And so Timothy got his biblical tutelage from his grandmother and his mother. And he says, Timothy, it has gone beyond just your mother and your grandmother. He says, I am convinced and I am sure that this genuine, unhypocritical faith dwells within you. By the way, just as a footnote, this shows that as parents and grandparents, we have the responsibility to pass the faith down to our children and grandchildren. We have to be intentional about that. Now, obviously, Timothy had to own what his mother and grandmother gave him, and so kids have to be able to embrace the faith of their parents. Not all kids do that. You may have done all the right things, and your kids walk away. But Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, I am reminded of the fact that you grew up in a godly home. Your mother and your grandmother created an environment where the truth of God was taught, and at a young age, you embraced it. Because notice what he says in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, You, however, Timothy, continue in the things you have what? Learn and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, why is Paul here reminding Timothy of his godly heritage? He's using it as a point of motivation. He's trying to tell Timothy, look, Timothy, I know you're not a hypocritical believer, I know you're not one who says, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, but you live like the devil during the week. I know you have a godly heritage and that you are a committed, genuine believer. And the reason he's telling him that is because he's about to lower the boom on him in a loving way. And he's saying, based on your unhypocritical faith, here's what I want you to do. And so here's the key. If you and I are going to be unashamed for Christ this year coming up, it starts with a basic commitment where I live out my faith for Jesus Christ. Not perfectly. In other words, you're not just interested in fire insurance. There's a lot of Christians that want Jesus as Savior, but they don't want Him as Lord. Kyle Eidelman wrote a book. If you haven't read it, you'll notice it up on the screen. It's called Not a Fan. It's sold over a million copies. It's a great book, but the thesis of the book is this. He says, the American church is filled with fans, not followers of Jesus Christ. They come to church, and the building is the stadium. Just like at a sporting event, you got all these fans that are cheering on their team, but they're not really committed. They're not on the field playing. They're not coaching. They're fans, but they're not followers. And there's a lot of people in the American church that are fans of Jesus, but they're not really following Jesus. They haven't drawn a line in the sand and said, I'm going to take up my cross, deny myself, and follow Jesus Christ. One of my good friends in New Jersey, when his two twin boys were younger, he went through a nasty divorce. And his ex-wife ended up taking his two twin boys. He said, I had to hire a private investigator to find them. 
And basically, he said, I went through court battles, and it cost me, listen to this, $120,000, because she took him to court for every little thing. And in the end, he had to pay buccal amounts of child support to his kids, which he didn't mind. But here's what he said. He says, you know what? He says, I was only able to see them on the weekends, but I didn't have custody of them. And you see, a lot of Christians, they want weekend visitations, but they don't want to have God have full custody in their life. They just want weekend visitations. But you see, God doesn't want just weekend visitations. He wants full custody in your life. And I remember when I was in high school, I was somewhat of a fan and a follower. I went back and forth. I remember my senior year in Florida, we have grad night. Grad night is when you take an all-night trip to Disney World. In fact, a bunch of high schools would go to Disney World. We'd leave at four in the afternoon. It was a chartered bus. And we'd drive drive to Disney World, which is about four hours from Miami, and we would stay up all night. Well, one of my buddies had an idea. He said, hey, why don't we bring some juice on board the bus, and we'll pour half of it out and put vodka? We said, great idea. And so I went ahead and did that, and a bunch of us got intoxicated, and one by one, we got called into the principal's office that following week. Because it was obvious we were all intoxicated. And I was a Christian. I knew better. And I remember I got suspended. And I said to the dean, I said, you know what bothers me the most is not that I'm going to take heat from my parents. And this was my senior year. I said, what bothers me most is people know I'm a Christian and I've given a black eye to Jesus Christ. You know the reason why? I was somewhat of a fan, not a follower. I became a follower when I got to college. How about you this morning? If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, you're ashamed of Christ. Because here's the question, why aren't you willing to identify with him? Are you not convinced that he is who he says he is? What's the reason? You see, a lot of times we don't want to give up control. That is the bane of our fallen will. We don't want to surrender and give up control. But see, if you're going to be unashamed for Jesus Christ, God doesn't want weekend visitations. He wants full custody. He wants us to surrender. And listen, that's an initial decision, but that is also a daily decision that I have to make. Well, there's a third thing that you and I can do if we're going to be unashamed for Jesus Christ, and that is we must exercise our gifts to serve others. Notice what he says in verse 6. For this reason, Timothy, because I know your faith is genuine and it's unhypocritical, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now, we don't know if this was Timothy's ordination service. We don't know if it was just a church service. But evidently, a group of people laid their hands on Timothy, Paul being one of them. And during that time when they laid hands on Timothy, if you read 1 Timothy, a prophetic word was given to Timothy about his calling and his gifts. And he says, Timothy, you have spiritual gifts And I want you to stir them. I want you to bellow them. I know the embers are burning, he says, but I want you to put lighter fluid on your spiritual gifts. You see, Timothy wasn't neglecting his gifts completely, but what he was doing was disengaging from maybe teaching and evangelism and leadership. And the reason why was because Timothy was fearful that he may be persecuted and may experience the same fate that Paul did. So he says, 
to Timothy, he says, I want you to stir into action your gifts. Why? Look at verse 7. For God has not given us the spirit of timidity, Timothy, but of power. He's given me the Holy Spirit. He's given me power. He's given me love, love for God, love for others. And he's given me discipline or a sound mind. What does that mean? A balanced mind that is not driven by fear. See, God has given us the resources, he says, not to be fearful. The problem is we don't appropriate the resources that God has given us. And he says, Timothy, I want you to use your gifts. And so it is with you and I. If we're going to be unashamed for Christ, here's the issue. Are you willing to step up and start serving God? I understand when you get saved, you know, you need time to grow. But listen, some of you have been in the faith for a long time, and you still come to church and you sit soaking sour. And you know why? You don't want to get involved. You want to just be a Sunday Christian only. And I don't say this in condemnation. I say it in pastoral love. But you know what God wants you to do? He wants you to be galvanized to use your gifts to serve Him. You say, well, I don't have any gifts. Yes, you do. If you're a Christian, according to the Bible, you have at least one spiritual gift that was given to you at the moment of salvation by the Holy Spirit. You probably have a gift mix. And what God wants you to do is discover your gift and use it. You say, well, how do I discover my gift? Get involved. Start serving. Do something. What do you like to do? What do other people confirm your gifts are? Listen, you got to step up to the plate and do something. Now, I know there are times where we have to have respite. We have to have seasons of rest. But listen, there's no reason why in this church of six or 700 people, why we should not have 80% involvement. Most churches, it is the... 80-20 principle or the 90-10 principle, the Prieto principle, which is a business principle. 10% of the people do 90% of the work. That should not be true in church. All of us here should use our spiritual gift, and here's why. Because we all have an assignment by God. God has gifted you and He's wired you uniquely to fulfill the assignment that He has given you. This is true in the animal kingdom. In fact, honeybees all have assignments. They have a very unique social system. In fact, 80,000 bees occupy one hive at one time. And each of the bees has a unique duty to fulfill. And you know what their role is? To serve the queen bee. By the way, that's where we get that expression where the mama in the house is the queen bee of the house. That's where we get it from because all these bees have a unique role. Listen to this. The forager bees, they're the ones that collect the food from the outside world to bring it to the hive. How about the guard bees? What is their role? Protect the entrance to the hive. Then you have the undertaker bees. These are the ones that remove the dead bodies from the hive. Then there are the water bees. These are the ones that bring in water to regulate the moisture in the hive. Then you have the plaster bees. These are the ones that repair the beehive when it gets broken down. Then you have the fan bees. Listen to this. These are the ones that fan a scent to the outside world so that lost bees who have lost their way can find their way back to the hive. And then, of course, you have the political bees. These are the ones that get involved in the politics of the beehives. They are better known as Huckabees. Uh, I know, that was bad. But you know what they all have a role in? They all have a specific job and an assignment. And you know what their role is? To serve the queen bee. Listen, you and I have an assignment to serve the king bee, and God's going to hold you accountable for what you do with your gifts. Some of you need a shovel. 
We're going to make shovels available after the service. Shovel, you say, why? Because some of you are burying your gift, and you know what you need? You need a shovel to dig up your gift so you can start serving God. Some of you, we're going to make lighter fluid available. Some of you are using your gifts, but you know what? You're kind of cool. You're kind of disengaged because you've gotten distracted. You're too busy or you're too lazy. You've allowed the world and the flesh to pull you in. And so you need a little bit of lighter fluid. Some of you need a little star. Remember those billboards that the teacher would put stars there because you were doing such a good job? Some of you need to get those stars. You know why? Because you're doing an awesome job. You're serving God faithfully. Keep it up. Where do you fall in that camp? God doesn't want you to sit, soak, and sour. God wants you to get involved. Why? Because listen, if you're saved, you're not going to go to the great white throne judgment and experience hell, but you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and God's going to evaluate you on what you did with your time, your treasures, and your talents. And listen, he's going to reward you commensurate with your faithfulness to serve him. And I don't know about you, but if that doesn't light your fire, your wood is wet. Because the older I get, the more urgency I realize that my time is coming to an end. And I want to be faithful to the Lord to serve Him. And so I want to challenge you this year, if you want to be unashamed for Christ, there's a number of you in here that need to step up and get involved. We have an array of ministries here. And listen, it doesn't have to be on campus. You may start a ministry on your job. It may be behind the scenes. It may not be public. It may be calling people. Listen, there's no small act that God does not recognize, but here's the issue. Are you getting involved? And so if you want to be unashamed for Jesus Christ, serve God through your spiritual gifts. There's a fourth thing that you and I can do if we're going to be unashamed for Christ, and that is we must fearlessly proclaim the gospel. Notice what he says in verses 7 through 11. For God has not given us, Timothy, a spirit of timidity or fear, but God has given us power, love, and discipline. Therefore, on the basis of that, verse 8, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. There it is right there. He says, Timothy, because God has given you boldness and power, he says, I don't want you to be ashamed. I don't want you to be governed by fear. He says, I want you to be bold in proclaiming the testimony of our Lord. And by the way, Timothy, don't be ashamed of me as prisoner. Why? Guilt by association. If Timothy was associated with Paul, the same fate that Paul received, Timothy could receive. So Timothy began to disengage. He says this to Timothy in verse 8, rather than be ashamed, join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. And then in verse 9, he's going to describe this gospel, which is grandiose. He says, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. But now, verse 10, has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which, he says in verse 11, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. He says, Timothy, I want you to preach the gospel boldly. And what is the gospel? Here is a summary of what he said, beginning in verse 9. He says, the gospel or the plan of salvation was determined before time. It was revealed in time through Christ coming to earth to die and rise from the dead. It is received by grace and not works. He says, if received, the gospel will lead to a holy life. 
It will also lead to immortality or to everlasting life. God has appointed all of us to share it with boldness. And finally, he says about the gospel, we may suffer for proclaiming it. That's the gospel message. Now, I know some of you are saying, well, look, I don't have those gifts. I can't walk up to a stranger and share. Listen, I'm not talking about stranger evangelism. If that doesn't resonate with your personality, that's fine. Not everybody likes to talk to strangers. But listen, we all have relationships, whether it's stranger evangelism or relational evangelism. We all have people in our life, in our network, that we can build relationships and share. How many of you haven't shared in the last one, two, three, four, five years? You see, God is calling you to be bold. That doesn't mean you don't use wisdom. It doesn't mean you're going to do it like everybody else. But listen, what we want to challenge you to do here at Calvary Chapel, John asks you to invite people once a month. That's a simple way. If you struggle, bring them here and John will give them the gospel. We have ABC cards. Do an act of kindness every month. Set a goal. I have to set a goal because if I don't do it, what happens is we tend to avoid what makes us uncomfortable. And so we got to be willing to be bold. There are times where... I have been bold, and there are times where I've been timid as a mouse. This week, Dabo Sweeney was interviewed by a bunch of reporters, and he took advantage of an opportunity to present almost the message of Christ to the reporters, because some reporter asked him about his faith, and he was taken back, and he said, well, I don't get asked that question that often. He says, but since you asked, and he launched into his presentation. And here is what Dabo Sweeney said, which I think is great. I think God has blessed Clemson because they have a spiritual focus, and he gives God all the glory. But here is what Dabo Sweeney said in this unique opportunity, and I quote, people know me, know that I ain't perfect, but I do try to live in a way that is hopefully pleasing to my maker, because I know I'm going to meet him one day, and he's not going to pat me on the back and talk about how many wins I had, how many coach of the year trophies I got, or how much money I made. He's going to hold me accountable about the impact I had on young people, the type of men we develop through a game, end quote. And then he went on to explain the gospel and how he accepted Christ at a young age. You see, God gives us opportunities, all of us. We have to take advantage of them. Do you realize that the word God has the word go in it? Do you realize that the word gospel has the word go in it? Do you realize the word good news has the word go? See, the Bible says go. We've got to be intentional about going. And you know what? When you fail, that's okay. Get back up. Peter denied the Lord three times. Jesus didn't cast Peter out. Now, let me answer this question because I know some of you maybe struggle with this. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you on that day. And some of us think, well, if we're ashamed of Christ in a witnessing situation, God is going to, he's going to separate himself from me on the day of judgment. That's not what that verse is talking about. That verse is talking about accepting Jesus. Jesus is saying in Matthew 10, if you're not willing to become a Christian and identify with me, he says, I will be ashamed of you on the day of judgment. He's not talking about witnessing situations where we should speak up and we don't. We've all have blown it before. But I want to challenge you, set a goal. If you're timid like Timothy, set a goal this year that maybe you're going to witness to two or three people. You know what? Take incremental steps. 
Well, there's another thing that you and I can do if we're going to be unashamed for Christ, and that is we must trust God to take care of us. And this helps us to be bold because we know that God has our back. Notice what he says in verse 12. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed, Timothy. Why was Paul not ashamed? Here it is. For I know whom I have believed. I know who my God is, and I know whom I'm trusting in, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. He says, Timothy, you know why I'm not ashamed? You know why I'm willing to suffer? You know why I'm willing to get my head cut off? Because I know the God whom I believe, and if God is for me, who can be against me? And he says, I know God has got my back, and I know what I've entrusted to him. Now, what is he talking about there? Probably his life, his ministry, the message of the gospel. He says, I've entrusted to God my life and my ministry, and God is able to take care of me because I know whom I believed in. And you see, my view of God affects how I do ministry. Because if I trust God, and I have a confidence in God, and I know who God is in terms of His character, that's going to help me to be bold. But you know what? We often forget who God is. We have to remember that God will not never leave us nor forsake us. He's got us by the hand. I was reading a true story about a young kid in Florida who lived behind this uh, lake, and one day he decided to take off his shirt and his shoes and take a swim. He didn't ask his mother. He was relatively young. And so he goes into the water and starts swimming. All of a sudden his mother's in the kitchen and she looks out the window and sees him out there. And as he's swimming towards the center of the lake, she sees a croc coming towards the shore. So she panics. She runs outside and begins at the shore to scream at her son saying, come back, alligator, alligator. So when he heard this, he turned around and furiously began to swim back to the shore. He finally got to the docks and the croc grabbed him by the legs. And his mother grabbed her son by the arms and the tug of war began to ensue. Well, a local farmer in the area saw what was going on. He gets out of his truck, takes his gun, goes over there and kills the crocodile. Well, the son was taken to the hospital because he had gash marks on his leg and he had to go through significant surgeries and healings. Well, while in the hospital, when he was in recovery, a reporter said, can you show me your wounds? And he said, yeah, look at these wounds. He says, but I got another wound that is even more significant than my leg wounds. He says, I want you to notice the deep scratch marks on my arm. He says, these scratch marks represent my mother and her love for me and her willingness not to let go. And you see, the Bible says that God will not let go of us. We can trust him. And even in our times of doubt, when we equivocate and we doubt God, God is still there for us because he loves us. And so if you and I are going to be unashamed for Christ, we got to trust God to take care of us. Listen, God will meet your needs. You seek first the kingdom, God will take care of you. He will provide for you. He will strengthen you in the midst of ministry. But listen, seek first the kingdom. That's the condition. If you're not willing to put God first, don't get mad at God if he's not supplying your needs like you think he ought to. Well, there's a sixth thing as we wind down, if you and I are going to be unashamed for Jesus Christ, and that is we must guard the truth. We must guard the truth. He says in verse 13 and 14 to Timothy, Timothy, I want you to retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Now, what does he mean here by retain the sound words? What he's saying is, Timothy, what I taught you, because remember, the Bible was in the process of being written. They didn't have the 27 books of the New Testament yet. They were being circulated, but they hadn't come together in a formal canon. 
So he says, Timothy, what I've taught you, I want you to use as the benchmark. I want you to use as the plumb line by which you measure everything you hear. See, that's being faithful to guard the truth because the Bible is the final authority. If you and I are going to be Berean Christians, we've got to know the Word of God and we've got to measure what we hear against the Scripture. And then he says this after he tells them to measure everything by the Word. In verse 14, he says, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. What is the treasure here? It is sound doctrine. It is the gospel message. You see, Paul knew when he was about to die that the gospel was going to be convoluted and corrupted. He knew that false teachers would enter in, and these false teachers basically would distort the truth. So he says, Timothy, I want you to do two things if you're going to be unashamed for me. When you are assailed by these false teachers, I want you to measure everything you hear by what I've taught you, and I want you to guard the good deposit. Guard the truth, Timothy. Why? Because it's been entrusted to you. In other words, we're stewards of the truth. God is going to hold us accountable. And I'll tell you what, universities that started off as missionary schools, churches that started off faithful to the Word of God, many of them have drifted, and what happens is they become liberal churches and they corrupt the truth. Universities like Harvard, Yale, Brown, Princeton, They started off as training missionaries and pastors, and now they're corrupted the truth. They deny the resurrection of Christ. See, if we don't guard it, what happens is we'll drift. And we got to do it in love, but we got to guard it. Now, I'm not talking about secondary doctrines where Christians agree to disagree. John and I pray now with pastors every month in the cafe. We have anywhere from five to ten guys come. You know what? If you interviewed all of them, I'm sure that we disagree on minor theological points, but we don't base our fellowship with them on that. We agree to disagree. But when it comes to the core doctrines, when it comes to the gospel, it is a treasure that we are to guard. Did you guys read about Mark Consuelo this week? Mark Consuelo is married to Kelly Ripa, and that's his son there on the right. His son is a wrestler, and he was involved in a wrestling match in California. And while he was wrestling this guy, he had his headgear on, and obviously the other opponent has his headgear. And during the match, I don't know how it happened, but the other opponent ripped off the headgear of Mark Consuelo's son. Well, you know what Mark Consuelo did as a typical dad? He stood up where he was standing in the stands, and he ran out onto the mat. And he looked at the boy, and he says, hey, what are you doing? As if to say, this is my son, you don't treat him that way. He was very protective. And you see, that's how you and I are to be towards the truth. We are to protect it. Now, we're not to be Pharisees, because there are some people that are heresy hunters. And every little thing that you don't agree with, you're a heretic, you're a heretic, you're a heretic. Be careful of those people. One final thing that you and I can do as we close out this morning, if you and I are going to be unashamed for Christ, we must follow bold examples. Beginning in verse 15, he's going to use several examples here. Two of the examples are negative. We're not to follow them. The one example is positive. You are aware, Timothy, of the fact that all who are in Asia, Asia Minor where Ephesus is, this isn't in the east where China is. He says, you're aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. 
And then he mentions two guys that are bad examples. They were ashamed of Christ. How would you like to have your name, especially these two names? Phygelus and Hermogenes. Phlegm and milk, that's how I remember them. Phygelus and Hermogenes, they turned away from Paul when the heat got hot and the kitchen got hot. They said, we're out of here. On the other hand, look at this positive example. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesephorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. You know what? He went to Rome at his own expense. They didn't have airplanes. This was an arduous travel. He searched for Paul. It took time to find him. And he was able to refresh Paul. And you know why he was bold? Because Onesephorus could have lost his head being associated with Paul. He says the Lord grant to him to find mercy, verse 18, from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. This guy was a bold example for Jesus Christ. Phygelus and Hermogenes, they were chickens. So he says to Timothy, chapter 2, verse 1, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You know what he's saying to him? Don't be like Phygelus and Hermogenes. Be like Onesephorus. He's a bold example. And you know what? If you and I are going to be unashamed for Christ, we got to be associated with people that love God and are bold for God. If you hang around people that are not walking with God, they're going to pull you down. They're not going to make you bold for Jesus Christ and help you to take a stand. You know what they're going to do? They're going to pull you away. Now, obviously, we're to love people and try to reach them, but we're to be in the world, not of the world. I was thinking as we close about a man who was a bold example. Back in the 90s, this airline right here, Ethiopian Airlines, you'll notice it crashed into the ocean there by the Comoro Islands off of Africa. Hijackers took over the plane and they couldn't reason with them. They said, look, if you don't let us land this plane and refuel, this plane's going to crash. Well, the hijackers said, nope. And so the plane began to go down. Well, there was a man on board that was a committed believer. His name is Andrew Meekins. We know this because a stewardess survived the crash and she gave this testimony. Andrew Meekins stood up right before the crash and he said, I want everybody to calm down. He goes, we may die. He goes, but God offers you eternal life. And he preached the gospel and he gave an invitation in the plane and 20 hands went up and they accepted Jesus Christ and he died in the plane wreck. That's an example of being bold for Jesus Christ. You say, well, I'm not that way and that's fine. God has made you unique. But here is the issue. Are you willing to take that little step? See, most Christians, you know what happens? People, listen, are you listening? Say amen. Don't fall into this attitude of business as usual. We all tend to do this. We come to church, check it off, and we're not growing and we're not changing. And I want to challenge you this morning. Are you growing? Are you changing? Are you unashamed for Christ? Yeah, you're going to blow it. Get back up. But if you're content just coming to hear a message and you don't want to live for the Lord during the week, listen, you need to examine your faith. Either you're not saved and you think you're saved or you're a lukewarm Christian and Jesus said, I will spit you out of my mouth. You're either for Christ or against Christ. Listen, he says, be on fire for me or don't follow me. But listen, don't straddle the fence. 
and we all have to fight this. And so how can you and I be unashamed for Jesus Christ in 2020? Number one, be connected to loving, accountable relationships. They will help you stay strong. Be a genuine, committed believer. Get away from this weekend visitation mentality. God wants full custody. Exercise your gifts to serve others. Stop sitting, soaking, and souring. Well, you know, we hired Pastor Mike and Pastor John to do it. No, 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 no. My job, you pay me to get you to work. (laughs) Fearlessly proclaim the gospel. You're going to do it differently, but listen, we all need to proclaim it. Trust God to take care of you. Guard the truth, which, by the way, means you need to know the truth, which means you got to study the truth. You can't be a Sunday Christian that just receives a message on Sunday. you got to be in the Word of God. Attend the classes that we offer. Learn your faith. Grow deeper. And finally, follow bold examples. How many of you want to be like Oni? You want to be like Phlegm and Hermogenes? Or do you want to be like Oni? Oni was bold. Let's pray. Father, thank you for reminding us of your truth this morning. Help us, Lord, to be unashamed for you. And and Lord, we all fail in this area. None of us are perfect. And I thank you, Lord, that we're under your grace. But God, I pray this morning that we'd all take a stand for you. And as you're sitting here this morning, the Lord spoke to some of you. Maybe one or two things that he pricked your heart. Would you be willing to surrender right now and say, all right, Lord, some of you are not serious in your faith. You just want to be a Sunday Christian. I want to challenge you to take that next step and become a follower, not a fan. Take a minute now to do business with God as he has spoken to you. Father, I pray this year, as we embark on this year, God, I pray that all of us would see growth in our life, that we would be intentional in the power of the Holy Spirit to set goals and not business as usual. I pray, as John talked about earlier, that, Lord, this would be a year of harvest for us, but, Lord, it's a cooperative effort. And so I pray that you would bless Calvary Chapel, not for the sake of blessing, not for the sake of numbers, but, God, that we would be a church on fire for you. Lord, so many churches are entertainment-driven in the American church, but there's little substance. It's all sizzle and no steak. Lord, forgive us. We give you praise in Christ's name. Amen.